We light the Advent candles to remind us that light has come into the world. As we prepare for Christmas season and all that it includes. Our text today is in Luke chapter 2. We'll also be considering from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But Luke chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 for our text today. Sometimes candles resist too. Must be Protestant candles. My father, my father said, if you protest, you're a Protestant. So. I grew up in a very poor household. And my mother was an expert at what she called making ends meet. And she carefully stretched every dollar and counted every penny. The food was scarce. I remember we had meat once a week, and that was a chicken for Sunday dinner. When my father shot a deer, that was the only other meat we ever had. There was an occasional can of Spam cooked with scalloped potatoes, and to this day I do not eat Spam. <laughs> and we had boiled rice served twice a week. And to this day, I don't eat rice either. I had all I ever wanted growing up. <clears throat> Eggs were a regular meal because we had chickens. And mom made homemade bread every three days. And that was our bread. I remember peanut butter sandwiches every day in my lunch at school. And I had a teacher, Mrs. Klotzbach, and she said, Look, you got homemade bread. And I said, Oh, yeah, that's what I got. <laughs> I wanted Wonder Bread, <laughs> uh, homemade bread. I often heard my mother talk about how she was going to make ends meet, and she had a special source of relief that she often spoke about. My father served in the South Pacific during World War II, and when he was released from duty, they gave him a checkup, and they found that his fingernails were not thin like yours and ours, but they were thick. And they called it jungle rot. And they said they're going to send him a check once a month because he got jungle rot serving his country. I don't know if that's what it was or not, but so it was that once a month he got a check from the government. And my mother waited for that check. She said, I'll pay that bill when the check comes. And uh, the way she spoke of that check, I thought, it must be a million dollars. It was going to be uh, solving all her problems. I found out later that it was somewhere around $30. <laughs> Not much money, you might say. But Mom treasured every penny. And Mom used to buy milk from the milkman who delivered it to our door in glass bottles. We all drank milk, so she also bought powdered milk. And she told us that she mixed a little powdered milk with the regular milk just to make it last. Well, one day I was peeking from the living room as she made up a big pitcher of powdered milk. 
and uh, she was pouring powdered milk into empty bottles, putting it in the refrigerator. And I said to her, I thought you mixed the powdered milk with the regular milk. She looked at me with that look of hers and says, you will never know the difference. And that was the end. I never said anything about it since. <laughs> so most of the time we drank powdered milk. But we survived. And we lived literally from hand to mouth. And as we come to the first Christmas and the story of what happened, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, we can't help but notice signs of poverty. But there's a lesson to be learned. And so let's begin in Luke chapter 2. I begin reading in verse number 1. It came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. The Roman Empire had reached the pinnacle of its power. It had seized power all across Europe, through Asia Minor, and down south through Israel, controlling Israel, and all across northern Africa. Caesar Augustus was in power, and we see in our text, it is his goal, he says, to tax the whole world. Ultimately, reigning power had a purpose. Taxes. <laughs> a regular flow of money into the treasury was the main goal of the Roman government. And so it was, everyone all across the Roman Empire had to register and pay the Roman tax. Rome did it like we still do it today. You pay taxes where you live. If you live in Medina, you pay taxes in Medina. If you live in Albion, you pay taxes in Albion. But Herod, the king of Israel, knew that there was nothing that made the Jews matter and more angry than paying Roman taxes. So he decided he would do something to make it more palatable to the Jews. He would have people go to their ancestral homes... So if you were of the tribe of Benjamin, you would go to a city that your ancestors came from, which meant that all your relatives also would gather in your ancestral city to register for the tax. And what that did was make it sort of a family reunion. All your registers would gather, all your relatives would gather in one place, and they thought, well, maybe the Jews will like it a little better if it's a family reunion. So it creates a situation. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So Joseph lives in Nazareth. It's at least three days travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, maybe four. He's a descendant of King David. Therefore, he can't register where he lives in Nazareth. He's got to go to Bethlehem where King David grew up, even though he has no connection to Bethlehem whatsoever. So Joseph 
must travel from Nazareth down south into Bethlehem, which is a strange city to Joseph, is especially inconvenient because his wife Mary is, quote, great with child. I remember when my wife was great with child. (laughs) Her mother called her every day and said, hasn't that little boy come yet? Talking about uh, Levi. And she cried every day after her mother called. Being great with child has its uh, things about it. Mary is great with child. The last thing anybody wants to do when they're nine months pregnant is walk for three or four days to go to a strange city just so you can pay the Roman tax. There's another problem. All of David's descendants have to go to Bethlehem. So the city is filled to overflowing with strangers. Every house has guests. Every room is taken. Every place is full as people gather from all across Israel who were descendants of David. Verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. As Mary and Joseph approach Bethlehem, there is what the Bible calls an inn here. A con was actually the name, K-H-A-N. It's nothing like the inns and motels that we know. It's an empty building out on the highway. It has four sections, a square building, and it is enclosed with a roof in the four sections. But in the middle, there is an open courtyard, and if you're passing by, you need a place to stay, you can stop there, tie your donkey up in the open courtyard, and make up your own bed in a spot under the enclosed section. There's no innkeeper, there's no cost, it's free. But when Mary and Joseph get there, the place is packed full. No room. So they go on into Bethlehem looking for a place. Of course, every room is full, every house has guests. And uh, now what? The trouble is, Mary's feeling a little funny, like mothers do when they're nine months pregnant. It's been a long trip. They look for a place where they can have a little privacy, and they are directed to a stable. Probably it was a cave where someone built a barn over the cave. It was a shelter. It was private. Mary could have her baby away from prying eyes. And we're told that she had the baby, wrapped him in swaddling clothes or rags, that's what they were, laid him in a manger, a wooden box filled with hay for his cradle. It's a very striking scene. It has been recreated in manger scenes all over the world ever since. We have many of them on display here at our church, from tiny glass figures to the beautiful one that's out in front of the church. It has captured the imagination of people everywhere for over 2,000 years. But let's take a closer look now and come into the stable. There are no comforts. It's a barn. 
There's only piles of loose hay, a few animals, maybe more than normal would be in the stable because of all the visitors in town. Might be extra donkeys. And in a plain wooden crate of some kind with loose hay in it, there's a baby. He's wrapped in rags and tightly swaddled. And there might be one lamp in the whole place or even a candle. There's no chairs. There's no table. It's a teenage mother and a quiet man and a baby and you stand and look at it and it screams out to you poverty. The whole world is moving all over the Roman Empire because of money. Taxes. Roman power on display. But there's no sign of money in this stable. People today would say that poor baby lying in the hay is a victim of poverty. But they would be wrong. Very wrong. You mean the baby doesn't live in poverty? No, that's not what I mean at all. What I mean is this baby wrapped in rags in a barn lying on hay is no victim. Oh no. That would be a total, complete misunderstanding of the scene. Yes, he's poor. Yes, his circumstances reflect poverty. But he is no victim. A victim is someone who suffers loss, usually because he has been cheated or swindled in some way, and that is not it at all. So what are we looking at? Explain this scene before our eyes. How do we think correctly about this baby wrapped in rags and lying in a manger? 2 Corinthians, I'm looking at 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. I'm reading verse number 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. This scene... A baby wrapped in rags, lying on a manger, is not an accidental circumstance. It's a plan. It's God's plan. A choice was made. The Son of God was going to enter the world through a human body, Mother Mary. And she's married to a poor to Joseph, they're a poor couple. Now they were chosen by God to be the parents. Why? Well, the Bible says because they were faithful and obedient and longing for Messiah to come. Yes, but also they're chosen because they were poor. Was that what made God choose them to be the parents of Jesus? What the verse says, it says, 
For your sake, he became poor. Jesus could have chosen any way, any family to come into this world, but he decided to come into this world poor. Why poor? Well, it says it was for you. He did it for you. He wanted you to look at Jesus and see he was poor. Not for his sake. He made the choice to be poor for your sake. For my sake. He wanted you to learn something from his poverty. Jesus chose to enter this world in poverty. And he says to us now, look carefully. Look at the manger scene. I did it for you. Now do you understand it? We kind of shake our heads and say, "Ah, what do you want us to learn? Well, I guess Jesus knew we wouldn't understand. So he kept it up. At the age of 30, he begins to preach and teach. And he makes this comment. The birds build nests, and they live in nests. The foxes dig holes, and they live under the ground in those holes. He says, but me, I don't have a place to lay my head. At 30 years of age, he's homeless. He's still poor. Now do you get it? Now do you understand it? Up in our cemetery, there's a row of graves. They're unmarked. There's no stones, no names. The only way you can tell where they are is to look at the ground. You see a place where... Uh, the dirt is slightly caved in. On the west side, there's four or five spots, and they are paupers' graves. People buried who were so poverty-stricken that they couldn't afford to be buried. So someone buried them in a simple wooden box, and the box rotted away, and the ground caved in a little. Paupers! Jesus was buried in a borrowed grave. No money, no cemetery plot. Joseph of Arimathea gave a tomb to Jesus. It was the burial of a pauper. Jesus was buried in a borrowed grave. And from the day he was born until the day he died, he was poor, he was homeless, he was a pauper, not by accident, but by choice. For your sake. Why? What's he trying to say to us? Well, one day, as Jesus was teaching, he reached up and he picked a wild flower. It was a lily. It was a lily. A lily of the field. And he held it up and he said, Look at it. Beautiful. It's delicate. Perfectly colored. It's a wonderful texture. And then he said, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like this wild flower. 
Solomon, one of the richest men who ever lived. In Solomon's time, they had so much gold that the Bible says silver was no big deal. You, what do you got, silver? Eh, that's nothing. We got gold, mountains of gold. And silver was, well, barely worth the effort. Solomon, unbelievably wealthy, couldn't buy clothes that were as nice as that wildflower. So Jesus, in his poverty, trying to teach us that there are things that money just can't buy. There was a little lady here who used to play our piano for us. Her name was Vera Clark. And when she died, I was given some of her books. And when I went through her Bible, I found a little piece of paper in her Bible. Just a little piece. Now I keep it in my Bible. And here's what it says. Money will buy a bed, but not sleep. Money will buy books, but not brains. Money will buy food, but not appetite. Money will buy finery, but not beauty. Money will buy a house, but not a home. Money will buy medicine, but not health. Money will buy luxuries, but not culture. Money will buy amusement, but not happiness. Money will buy a crucifix, but not a Savior. Money will buy a church pew, but not heaven. So what did Jesus try to teach us with his poverty? That the most valuable things are not things you can buy with money. Here's the Son of God, Jesus himself, wrapped in rags, homeless, poverty-stricken, in a pauper's grave, trying to teach us what is valuable, what is worthwhile, what we should treasure. And he says it, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. What lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Why? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Some people over the ages misunderstood, didn't get what they looked at when they saw the manger. They thought, we'll be poor, and they took vows of poverty. They said, that's how we'll be like Jesus. That must be what Jesus wants. Poverty is not a virtue. Jesus lived in poverty for our sakes, for us. So that we, through his poverty, might become rich, it says. Rich in what? Money? No, 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 no. Turn on Christian TV. Go from channel to channel. You'll see how misunderstood the manger scene is. One will say, God wants to bless you and give you money. God wants you to prosper. Give our ministry a donation and God will fill your hand. 
There's one he's so bold, he says, drink our miracle spring water and God will send you a check in the mail. (laughs) These poor folks have been looking at the manger scene for years and not understanding. Their motive for serving God is hope that he'll fill their pockets with money. Jesus said, look at me. I got nothing. Nothing that money can buy. Born in a stable and wrapped in rags. But I have come to make you rich. And here's what matters most. Forgiveness. Full pardon. Priceless in value. And it doesn't cost a cent. Eternal life. You can live forever. No money required. Just believe and live. Heaven, a home there, a mansion prepared for us in heaven. No down payment and no mortgage. Peace that passes, he said, all understanding. Can you imagine it? A fullness in your heart. Stress-free relationship with God. No money, no price. Look at the manger and know that the things of value are not bought with money. Where is your treasure today? You say, Eric, the world's gone crazy. So what? I say to you, Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You can be a child of God. You can be adopted into His family. He came down here and lived in poverty so you can look at Him and see that the best things in life are free. Jesus comes to give us gifts. And in His giving, though He was poor, He has made us rich. So take heed, my friends. Christmas time was given to us to make us rich and full. So come and partake. No money required. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Believe and receive. Look at that baby in the manger. Well, the whole world was worried about money. Caesar wanted everything that money could buy. Jesus came, made us a better offer. Joy to the world, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And he says, he did it for you, for your sake, He became poor. I hope you never look at a manger scene the same way again. He stands for everything that is important and all that matters. Won't you give Him all of your heart in this Christmas season? Jesus lived in poverty, yet He was full of God's blessing because He knew what was truly valuable. And He says to us, come and see. The whole world was hungry for money. A Savior who lived without money. The Roman Empire fell and is gone. It is no more. The kingdom of Jesus is forever. No money. No price. Merry Christmas. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for what you showed us in the manger, what you taught us that we would know what was really important, what really mattered. And it's a great, thankful heart that we have 
as we come to this season and recognize what a wonderful thing you did. And we ask that you help us to remember what matters and what's important, and that we'll do those things. So bless us in this time and in this season, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In closing, I'd like you to turn in your hymn books, if you will. Page number 376, a song about that simple birth and all the good things that happened in the bleak midwinter. In the bleak midwinter, first the wind made moan, wasted hard as iron, water like a stone, snow had fallen, stone, snow. to you. We pray that we would come to worship you. We know that you came to this earth and lived in poverty, poverty so that we might be rich, rich in the things that matter in this world. Our relationship with God, forgiveness, 
joy that only comes from the Spirit of God living in our hearts. May we tell that joy to others. May we experience that at this Christmas time and have the peace that passes all understanding. We ask, Lord, that our hearts would be ready to tell many others and show many others about these things, about the love of Christ and that baby born in a manger. May we look at every manger scene and may you draw from our hearts the love that you have shown to us. We thank you for all these and we ask for protection throughout this day and this week. Lord, we thank you for the many opportunities we have to serve you, and we pray that we would serve you with great joy. Watch over us and bring us back to this place with great love for one another and kindness for all around. Just ask for safety and help throughout this day in your name.